You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Melissa will be reading scripture passage for today from Galatians 2. This is the word of the Lord. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to be to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be the, to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Thank you. Um, several years ago, um, this is a long story, but to shorten it up, I was in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, and I needed some cash. Um, and I was uh, stranded because I was supposed to go through this toll booth and I didn't have any cash. And, um, and so they, the people at the toll booth, they told me to, that I could pull over and, um, you know, there's an ATM machine a few blocks away and I could walk over there. And so I did. I walked over there. I realized I didn't have my debit card. But I did have a credit card, and, but it didn't work. And so um, I didn't put two and two together that I could have asked if I could use a credit card at the toll booth. Anyways, um, what happened was I, was I went to a McDonald's. And uh, I was talking to these McDonald's people, and I was like, hey, you know, I have uh, the situation. I need some cash to go through this toll booth, and um, I have a credit card. So is it okay if I just, you know, use this credit card to buy something, and I get some cash back as if this was a debit card? And they're like, no. <laughs> we, don't, we, we sell hamburgers, you know? So, <laughs> so I left, and then uh, across the street, I remember I saw this small Chinese takeout restaurant. Okay, so I went over here, and I gave them the same spiel, and I was like, hey, you know what? I have this uh, credit card. I need money, whatever, and the guy's like, can I see your license? And I was like, okay, here's my license, and he's like, your last name is Lin. Are you Chinese? And I say, oh, yeah, I am Chinese, and I, 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 didn't, I don't speak Chinese very well, but I, I, I spoke a little bit to just show him that you know, I genuinely was Chinese, and then he thought for a little bit, and he is like, um, you know what, Chinese people help Chinese people. I'll do it for you. And so he, he, he gave me uh, 10 bucks, and, um, you know, I, I charged, you know, he, he, I mean, I gave him a $10 thing on my credit card. He had a little fee, credit card transaction. Anyways, um, so I got the 10 bucks and I left. And, um, and I think what I learned, I learned a lot of things from that experience, but I, I learned that there was this advantage to being Chinese at a Chinese takeout restaurant, um, 
if I wasn't Chinese, I don't think the guy would have helped me. But the guy was able, he decided he wanted to help me because he was Chinese and I was Chinese. And so he said, there was this correlation, this common ground, even though we have nothing else in common, we just met that day. He decided to say, I'm going to help this guy out just because we have this similarity. I'm going to do something for this person because of our common bond. Um, in the secular world, this idea of helping someone in need often is predicated on this idea that we are similar. Okay? In order, and this is how most people operate, if I want to help somebody, okay, if I see a need and I, I want to respond to that need, generally what people do is they, they, they assess the situation. They go, am I similar to this person? Can I relate to this person? Do I have enough common ground with this person? If so, then I will help that person. But if not, if I, this person's a total stranger, we're nothing alike, and I, then I, I might not be able to trust this person, and so I feel less inclined to help that person, right? And so that's sort of a, a just sort of a psychological thing that uh, we all go through. And, and I think it's more than just helping people. I think this, uh, this, this goes beyond that. It also goes into uh, who we develop relationships with. Uh, this goes into who we talk to, this, who we associate with. I think the human heart has this tendency to want to be in relationship with those who are similar to us. Um, one way you can frame it is unity relies on uniformity. Unity relies on uniformity. Or you can think of it as unity relies on sameness. The way people decide, typically... In the, in the greater world out there, the way people decide if they want to be in relationship with one another, if they want to work together, if they want to partner with one, one another, if they want to serve together, is by evaluating how similar they are to one another. Um, you know, here's some examples. And when I was in middle school and high school, I, don't, I imagine this is still a thing. Uh, when I was in middle school and high school, uh, the way we chose to hang out, the, the way we chose who to hang out with is we would look around and see who was similar to us. That's what we did, right? And so if you were a jock, you hung out with jocks. If you were a nerd, you hung out with nerds. And I was a nerd, you know, full disclosure, that's who I was. So I was hanging out with nerds, okay? Um, except for the times I was reading alone in the library. Um, so that's what I was doing, okay? And so the way I would look, I would look around and I would say, this guy has similar interests. This guy is, uh, has similar hobbies. This guy has similar mannerisms. And so I would go hang out with those people. And that's how life works back then. And as we grew older, we sort of keep that same thing. We might not do it as explicitly, uh, but I think this is also true, for example, when we choose who to marry. How do you choose whom to, who to marry? A lot of the, the factors involved are sameness. You know, you know, there's a saying, people say opposites attract, and I think that's partially true. Uh, there's, uh, there's something alluring about the unfamiliar, but I think at the practical level, we all want compatibility, compatibility. And what compatibility is this idea of, do we have similar interests? Do we have similar values? Do we have similar life goals? Are we similar enough? Is there enough sameness or uniformity that we can unite with one another? We do this with politics. We look at ourselves. We find people of similar political views and we relationally unite with those people. Sometimes we even uh, block or defriend people who we do not unite with. We, we do this with race. We look at ourselves. We find people who have similar ethnic backgrounds with us. 
usually not intentionally, but we find ourselves jiving with those people. And sometimes, some of us, we even develop prejudices of others' backgrounds. Um, It is a norm, whether consciously or subconsciously, for people to spend a lot of their time with people who are similar to them, to unite with people with whom they have uniformity. And why? Because I think there is this underlying assumption that unity depends on, relies on, sameness and uniformity. This assumption is that you can only have close relationships and partnerships with those who are similar to you. And in its innocent forms, you have things like country clubs and high school cliques. And at its worst forms, you have things like racial segregation and sometimes even ethnic war and cleansing. And unfortunately, uh, this type of thinking from the dawn of uh, the church's beginnings, even until now, this type of thinking has at times creeped into the church and has infiltrated the church. The church has often been marked by people who have pushed, I would say, the secular agenda of sameness and of uniformity thinking, I can only relate to you, I can only talk to you, I can only be your friends if we have this much common ground. But if not, then I'll go my way and you go your way. We're going through the sermon series in Galatians, and if you haven't heard yet, uh, uh, if you haven't heard these sermons yet, you can listen to them online. If you're a podcaster like I am, you can also subscribe to them um, on your podcasting app. Um, And Paul wrote this book of Galatians because there were certain people from Jerusalem preaching a different gospel. And this gospel that they were preaching, this alternative gospel, was predicated on the idea that unity relies on uniformity and sameness. It was predicated on this idea that in order for us to be with one another, to serve one another, to love one another, we needed to be similar to one another. So that's what this false gospel was. And Paul was writing this letter in response and saying that it doesn't matter if you are the same or not. What matters is the gospel. And so we need you to be centered on the gospel. Paul was teaching this semi-radical teaching, which is that the church was to be truly cross-cultural. Cross-cultural. Sameness wasn't necessary And this was radical because uh, many followers of Jesus at the time, they viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism. And Judaism was very much a cultural uh, religion, is an ethnic religion. In order for someone to become a Jew, that person had to adopt Jewish practices and rituals and customs. And many people, they believed that Christianity was a sect of Judaism. And so the natural progression was, if you were to become a Christian, you had to also adopt these Jewish customs and traditions and laws like circumcision and dietary restrictions. And so in order to become a Christian, you would first need to become Jewish. Or to put it another way, The cultural identity was so central to to Judaism and therefore Christianity that in order to become a Christian, you needed to adopt this cultural identity. But Paul was teaching that Christianity was different. He was teaching that Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, could become Christians without conforming to Jewish culture. And so he was saying that what you could do is you could keep your own culture, your own customs, your own traditions, and practice Christianity in a way that was contextualized to who you are and where you came from. And thus, Christianity had the potential of being cross-cultural. And today I want to answer two questions. Number one, what 
uh, why does cross-cultural unity matter? And number two, what does cross-cultural unity look like? Number one, why does cross-cultural unity matter? And number two, what does cross-cultural unity look like? And we'll be looking into Galatians 2, 1 through 10, which Melissa read earlier. In this uh, passage, uh, Melissa, uh, this, Paul is continuing this long narrative of his account of how he became a Christian, how he got plugged into the church, how he received this calling uh, to preach to the Gentiles. And he is explaining, I think, in this passage, why cross-cultural unity matters and what cross-cultural unity looks like. Um, I'm going to read from Galatians 1, uh, sorry, Galatians 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul, he is talking about how he he became a Christian and then what he did next was he spent 14 years preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and then he goes to Jerusalem and he explains why. He wants to set before the Jerusalem leaders the gospel he is proclaiming. Why? In verse 2, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. We have a daughter, my wife and I, and uh, a lot of the times, uh, you know, she's a toddler, um, we feel like we are cleaning up our house in vain. I don't know if you ever relate to that. Uh, We're cleaning things up, and as soon as we clean things up, she makes a mess somewhere else, and we're just constantly cleaning things up after her. She's really into pouring things on the ground these days. That's her thing. And, um, and when she does these things, she is, in a sense, undoing our efforts to clean up the house. And so Paul is experiencing a similar dynamic. He has this agenda, this mission. He is preaching the gospel. And then right behind him, there are these people preaching an alternative gospel. And they are undoing uh, what he is preaching about. And, and he is thinking, am I doing this in vain? And so what he decided to do is he went down to Jerusalem, sort of like, the, uh, the Christian church HQ at this point, and he's going to meet up with these Christian leaders, and he wants to clear up, okay, am I preaching the same gospel as you guys? Because there are these other people who are preaching this other gospel, and they're requiring people to take on these Jewish customs and habits. And so that's what he's doing. So he, let's keep going. Verse 3, he's at Jerusalem now, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So what Paul is saying is he's at Jerusalem and and he's wondering why are these people teaching this stuff, believing this stuff? I need to clear this up with the church leaders. And he talks about these two groups of people, right? The first groups of people, uh, he calls them those who seemed influential. Those who seemed influential, the Jerusalem leaders. And he's saying these guys, it seemed like they got it. They they were on his team. They recognized Titus was uh, not a Jew and they didn't force him to be circumcised because they were not pushing their Jewish practices on him. And so they recognized Christianity is supposed to be cross-cultural. Okay. And they said, in, 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 and he said in verse six at the end, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, they are not requiring Christians to add anything onto the gospel. 
So that's what they got. Entrance into the church is marked by believing in the gospel, and that's it. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to uh, uh, join any special club. You don't need to add any traditions or customs to what you typically do. You just believe in the gospel. So, so those are those who seem influential. And then there's another group of people, those he calls false brothers. In verse 4, he says that these people are spying out his freedom in Christ and trying to bring them into slavery. And he's not talking about literal slavery. He's talking about a spiritual slavery because he, in his mind, when you are preaching a gospel where you say, believe in Jesus, and then you need to do this and this and this and this, in his mind, that is slavery. You are putting into slavery those who have been set free through Christ by demanding on them, the, demanding of them these rules and these traditions and these rituals. And in verse 5, he says something extraordinary. He says, To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He says, We didn't submit to these demands of this is what we got to do in order to be a Christian. You got to do this, add this, add this, add this. We did not submit to these demands. We did not adopt these Jewish practices. Why? So that we may preserve the truth of the gospel for you. So do you, do you notice how he... he, he he describes this. It's not just, okay, these people want you to do a few things and uh, this is like extra credit or something. In his mind, the truth of the gospel is holy compromise is lost because these people are demanding these things, right? He says, he says we are unable to preserve the truth of the gospel because these people are adding these demands onto you. You see, when Christians try to add things to the gospel... When Christians say stuff like, oh, yes, you, you can become Christians, but you also need to do this and this and this and this. When Christians do that, they undercut the gospel. The truth of the gospel is compromised. This isn't just a, a first century phenomenon. This is a 21st century phenomenon as well. Throughout church history, the majority culture of the church has been forcing the minority culture to adopt majority culture values as a prerequisite for joining the church. I want to say this again. Throughout church history, the majority culture of the church has been forcing the minority culture to adopt majority culture values as a prerequisite for joining the church. Um, back then, it was Jewish customs and rituals they're saying, in order to join the church, you've got to adopt these things, adopt the majority culture values. Today, it might be something else. For example, you might have Christians, they'll say something like, oh, yes, you, you can become a Christian. But if you do, and when you come to church, then you need to dress this way. And if you don't dress this way, maybe church isn't for you. And what they're doing is they're asserting their majority culture values onto the minority culture. Or they might say something like, oh, yes, you can become a Christian, but if you do, then you have to be into this style of music. You can't listen to this kind of music anymore. You have to adopt our maturity culture values because this is the style of church music. That's what they might say. Or they may say, oh, yes, you can become a Christian, but if you do, then what you got to do is you got to affiliate with this political party because this political party is the political party of Christianity. And so there's all sorts of things you might think of, of, of people in the majority culture pushing their values onto people who are trying to join the church. And they're saying in order to become a Christian, a true Christian, a genuine Christian, a real authentic Christian, you not only need to believe the gospel, you also need to 
check this box and this box and this box and this box. I remember one time several years ago before I was at the village, I was visiting another church. I was traveling somewhere out of town. I was in a place I never went to before. I was visiting a random church and it was summer. It was hot. I didn't have any church clothes. And so I was just wore my normal clothes. I was wearing flip-flops and I went to this church. And uh, I remember a few people were staring at me because I was by far the most underdressed person in the, in the room. And um, after service, this older lady uh, came up to me and she said, um, next time you come, you shouldn't wear slippers or sandals, you know, just, just so you know. And I, I, left. I, didn't, I didn't say anything, I just left. But I remember thinking, if I wasn't a Christian, if that was my first time, I was just checking things out, I would probably never come back again. You see, all of these requirements, the style of dress, musical preferences, political affiliation, you can fill in the blank. All of these are examples of people adding to the gospel. And those who don't fit the mold of the majority culture in the church, then they're presented with two options. Either they get rid of their own culture and they surrender to this way of doing things or they leave the church. That's all there is to it. And what has happened in many churches today, in the modern church today, is that many churches are monocultural. What do I mean by monocultural? They have one culture. And most of them, they don't do it intentionally. What they do is they have these subtle emphases, these subtle values, these subtle judgments. And then so someone who comes in who is different from that majority culture, they come in and they feel out of place. They feel outcasted. They don't know how to behave themselves. And so, and they feel like they need, they have the pressure to try to fit in, to try to do things differently that they're not used to, and they don't know how to do it. So they leave. And so the culture stays the same. You have churches where everybody has the same culture. They have similar jobs, similar hobbies, similar personalities, similar values, similar jokes, similar ethnicities. It's almost like they're clones of one another, right? And then people who are new, either they get with the program or they go somewhere else. And when that happens, the power of the gospel is lost. The gospel is compromised. The truth of the gospel is not preserved. In other words, the reason why cross-cultural unity matters is because the gospel depends on it. The gospel depends on people who are different having cross-cultural relationships with one another. And that is how the gospel moves forward. And I think uh, Paul realized this in the beginning, which is why he wanted to hammer this home. In order for the church to become a cross-cultural movement, to be bigger than just a sect of Judaism, is for these walls between cultures to break down. And he had to take a stand in the early days of the church to say, the church is not just for the Jews, it's for all people. And so for people to join the church, they do not have to adopt Jewish values and Jewish cultures and Jewish rituals. They can remain who they are and become Christians just as they are. In fact, I would propose that the cross-cultural unity of the church is not just a New Testament thing. This is actually one of the central themes of Scripture. I want to spend a few minutes unpacking this, okay? Number one, who is God? God is a trinity. What is a trinity? It is a great mystery that 
three persons, three persons who are distinct from one another, have their own role, have their own identities. They are unified as one God. What is that? That is cross-cultural unity. That is a picture of three beings who are different from one another, distinct from one another, but they are so united that they are one. When God designed creation, here's another example. He embedded creation with diversity and he embedded, think about this. If you just read Genesis 1, he's talking about different plants, different animals, humans, male and female. He's talking about all these things and the goal is he is creating all this diversity with intention that they are united in, in their worship of God, in their glorying of God. Here's another example. When God created us, he gave us marriage. What is marriage? Marriage is two people becoming one flesh. You have two people distinct. They have their own identities, own habits, own personalities. They are becoming one flesh. That is cross-cultural unity. Throughout the Old Testament, you see God uh, wanting to bring all nations to worship him, right? All nations, diverse, speaking different languages. He has this goal of bringing all people together. And you see this all over the place. I'm going to read from Isaiah 2. Two to four. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations. He's not saying this is just for Israel. All the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes from many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a picture of world peace, right? This is all nations coming together. They're saying we don't need swords and spears. We're going to be united. We're going to be one under the banner of God. This is cross-cultural unity, and this is one of the major themes in the book of Acts. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, I encourage you to read it, but I'm going to go through it really quickly, okay? In Acts 1, Jesus commissioned the church to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it's very clear, in Acts chapter 1, the gospel is supposed to go forth cross-culturally, You're supposed to go beyond your ethnic tribe to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, the very next chapter, Pentecost happened. And the Holy Spirit poured out. And what happened in Pentecost? People of different cultures experienced the gospel in their own languages. And that was God's way of telling people, this gospel is not just for people who speak this language. It's for all people, regardless of what language you speak, regardless of what culture you come from. And you see this throughout the book of Acts. There are intentional stories that Luke wrote in the book of Acts about people crossing cultures to preach the gospel to people of different cultures. You have Philip talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. You have Peter, the vision of unclean foods, talking to the Roman centurion. You have Paul, of course, commissioned by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and doing these missionary journeys. And in the book of Acts, you have the story of the Jerusalem council. There's one church council in the whole book of Acts. And what is that council about? It is about cross-cultural unity. It is about the fact that matters that there are people who are joining the church. What do we do? And they decide, you know what? We're going to let them into the church. And we're not going to enforce our values on them. That is, I think, one of the main themes of the book of Acts. That God wants for his gospel to go beyond just the Jews, but to reach all people groups. In Revelation, 
makes it the point that one day people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, they'll be standing in the throne room of God. The Bible from Genesis to Acts to Galatians, Revelation is this, is this narrative of God bringing together a people for himself and not just a few people from one tribe, but across cultural, multicultural, multi-ethnic, diverse people. I didn't think that's central to the gospel. And so Paul recognized that, and so he emphasized that the church at its early days needed to be cross-cultural. But what does it look like practically? So that's the reason why, you know, we pursue cross-cultural unity. But why? Uh, But what does that look like practically? How do we do that? That's the second question I want to address. Starting from verse 7, I'm going to read this. Galatians 2, 7. On the contrary... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And he's going to continue the sentence later, but I want to unpack this a little bit. So he's talking about circumcised and uncircumcised as sort of like uh, 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 as another way of referring to the Jews and the Gentiles, okay? And Paul, he's saying he met with the leaders of the Jerusalem church and they recognized that Paul was doing something, he's doing something a little different, right? He's recognizing that, okay, Peter is entrusted with the gospel to the Jews and Paul is entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. They recognized that. There were different, different calling. And, and notice, they weren't condemning that Peter was ministering to the Jews and Paul was ministering to the Gentiles. It's not, he's, it's not like they're saying, Peter, how come you're not ministering to the Gentiles? Or Paul, how come you're not ministering to the Jews? They're recognizing you have different callings, okay? But, there's, they're, but at the same time, they're saying, in verse 8, the same God who was working through Peter is the God working through Paul. It's the same God. So you can frame it like this. They have two different callings, but they have the same mission. Two different callings, but the same mission. Let's keep going. Verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, Cephas is Peter, by the way. He has multiple names. Kind of confusing. That's what it is, okay? Who seem to be pillars, perceive the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So again, they're not, they're not saying, oh, we gotta, you got you to, gotta, Peter, you got to mix it up now. You got to bring in some Gentiles or Paul, you got to mix it up now. You got to bring in some Jews. They're recognizing you have two different callings, right? You have two separate ministries, but they're recognizing, okay, Paul and Barnabas, you're going to go to the Gentiles and James and Cephas and John, you're going to go to the Jews. Now you might look at that and you might go, how is that unity? It looks like you're doing very different things. And I would say, Unity isn't doing the same things. Uniformity is doing the same things. And the church isn't supposed to be defined by uniformity. It's supposed to be defined by unity. What unity is, is you have people doing different things, but they're united under a common purpose, a common goal, a common mission. That's what unity is. You know, sometimes people give mono-ethnic churches a hard time. And uh, you know what I mean by mono-ethnic churches? Everyone is white, everyone's black, everyone's Asian, something like that. And, um, and they say, how is it that in the 21st century you have so much racial segregation in the church? And um, I think what this text is saying is that they had mono-ethnic churches, right? They're saying in Jerusalem, 
James and Cephas and John, they were ministering to the Jews and Paul was going elsewhere and he was ministering to the Gentiles and they were okay with that. So I don't think this is a, a knock against mono-ethnic churches. I think what this is saying is these mono-ethnic churches, they were in partnership with together. They were working together. They were serving one another. I think that's the, the picture of unity is painting. Uh, in verse nine, it says, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. And this English word fellowship is the translation of the Greek word koinonia. In this phrase, this right hand of fellowship, the right hand of koinonia was an expression, that, uh, a Greek expression, meaning that they are pledging friendship and partnership to one another. They're saying even though we are different, we look different, we talk different, we have different cultures, different values, different customs, we're going to be partnering with one another. Um, even though we have different callings, we're going to have one mission. Even though we might have different ways of doing things, different priorities, we are united in our central purpose. Last Friday, I was at um, the Baltimore Baptist Association annual meeting. And uh, by the way, uh, if you don't know, the Village Church is the Baptist church. Surprise. Some of you might not know. Um, I, I always talk to people, and they've been attending our church for years. And they go, oh, really? I didn't know that. Now you know. Anyways, um, uh, at this meeting, this is, a, this is a Baltimore Baptist Association, the BBA, uh, their collection of about 70 churches or so and in the greater Baltimore area. And um, it, it is striking to me whenever I'm there because it is one of the most diverse, one of the most diverse collections of churches I've ever seen. Um, you know, you have these large suburban African-American churches. You know, you have these uh, small historic hymn book churches. You know, you have uh, the inner city churches that, you know, like the bulk of the ministry is helping people to get off of substance abuse, you know, and you have uh, these Chinese churches and Nepalese churches. You have churches of, I mean, it's just as diverse as you can get. And it was amazing for me to be there and to recognize, you know, all of us in this room, we don't look alike. We don't, sometimes we don't even talk alike. And if you just look at our churches, they would look nothing alike. They have different ministries, and some, some of us, we have Sunday school. Some of us, we have small groups or community groups, and some of us, we have Wednesday night Bible study. And we have all sorts of things going on. We're all different, but we are united under a common purpose, a common mission. And I believe that what I experienced on Friday is a glimpse of what Paul wants for the church at large. This is a world where different churches, they have different demographics, different priorities, different callings. They partner together because they have one mission. I think the many examples of the local church in the New Testament, they teach us that the local church should never be isolated. It should never be just on its own. No accountability to anybody else. Just hanging out by itself. They should always be in relationship with other churches and ministries, and especially those who might be different. What does it look like to be in relationship or partnership with other ministries? I want to keep going. Verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Partnership requires action. Partnership requires action. Here's the thing. You can say... I'm in partnership with this church. I'm in partnership with this ministry. You can say all the things you want to say, but if there's no action, it's meaningless. Then it's just talk. And so the practical action step for Paul and Barnabas was they needed to remember the poor. 
You see, in Paul's day, Jerusalem was a relatively poor city, compared, especially compared to a lot of cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, Jerusalem was filled with Jewish refugees. And uh, many of these people were not doing well. And so Jerusalem just frankly had a higher level of poverty than a lot of these cities that Paul was going to. And so uh, the Jerusalem leaders, they were telling Paul, you know, we know you have the separate mission. You got to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but we ask you to remember the poor. We ask you to remember the poor. And Paul did just that. We don't see the details here, but we hear about this in other books of the Bible, like Romans and in 2 Corinthians, where Paul's talking about how he is, while he's preaching the gospel to the, the, the church at large in the, in, in the Gentile world, he is actually also collecting financial offerings to send back to the poor in Jerusalem. He does this throughout his ministry. And I think that's what cross-cultural unity looks like. It's not just saying, okay, finally you got off my back. You know, these guys are giving me a hard time telling me I got to do this and these Jewish laws. So finally you're off my back. And now I can get back to business and do my ministry to the Gentiles. Partnership is also, I'm going to do my ministry to the Gentiles. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to be raising funds to send back to the poor in Jerusalem. Even though that's not my territory, that's not my jurisdiction, I'm going to do that too because I'm in partnership with this church. Um, and this is something we try to do at the Village Church as well. Um, you know, we prayed for Village Church Station North earlier, and uh, that is an example of partnership that we have. Uh, we also support them financially right now as well. Uh, we recognize we're two separate churches. We're independent. We have our own staff. We have uh, separate calling, separate locations, but we partner with them because we want to support their work. Um, in addition to Station North, you know, we support... Uh, other ministries denominationally. Um, the Baltimore Baptist Association, we give to them, and what they do is they funnel finances out to other churches that are in need. And so through our giving to the Baltimore Baptist Association, uh, we have also bought backpacks for kids at other schools. We have given away Thanksgiving meals. We have hosted Christian conferences. Other churches are able to do things, to do ministry, because we contribute to the Baltimore Baptist Association. And through our Baptist networks also, we contribute to church planting efforts throughout Maryland and Delaware. We contribute to paying the salaries of thousands of missionaries worldwide. Every year, we also directly financially support uh, three different missions organizations on our own initiative in Haiti and in Zambia and in Peru. And all these are just people we want to partner with. We see, you know what, you're doing great work. God has blessed us with some resources. And so we, what we want to do is we want to help support you. And if you give financially to our church, maybe you're thinking, what in the world? You're you giving my money away to all these people I never heard of? And I would say, yes, that's what we do. And I want to encourage you to, to do that even more because we believe, we believe that we're, we as a church, we're not supposed to hold, to, to hoard onto all the money that we have been given, but we are supposed to dem demonstrate generosity just as you demonstrate generosity to us. And just as God, so dem uh, he, he so generously gives to us as well. And so we encourage you to continue to give sacrificially so that we can continue to give to others as well. Because we believe that we can't do this on our own. The village church is not supposed to be an isolated church. We can't do this on our own. And what we need to do is we need to support other people on the front lines who are doing great work as well. That's what cross-cultural unity looks at the big, looks like at the big church, I'm sorry, the big picture church level. 
And I think that's what this passage is about. But maybe some of you are also asking, but I'm not, you know, a treasurer at this church. I don't make those sort of decisions. What do I do at the individual level? I have a few individual applications. First off, I encourage you, if you have time, to volunteer with local opportunities. Volunteer with local opportunities. Sometimes when we talk about serving in our church, we think about serving in the church. And we have a lot of needs, of course. You know, we, if you're interested in youth, I encourage you to sign up with youth. If you're interested in providing food for our families, you know, in need. You know, recently we had someone give birth to a baby. You can sign up to give foods to families. And so we have a ton of needs. However, we also encourage you to support through volunteering, through your time, other organizations. Because there are, a, there are many things, there are many things our church wants to do that we're just not in a, in a spot to do. And we see there are ministries out there that are doing amazing work. So I th- we believe our church can serve as a hub, as a networking system to connect people to volunteering opportunities. And so we've identified a, a few organizations, 1012 Sports, Thread, Johns Hopkins International Fellowship. These are all organizations that have different callings, but we think it's important to sign up. If you want to learn more, you can talk to us afterwards. Secondly... We encourage you to develop cross-cultural friendships. Cross-cultural friendships. It can be easy in our church world to just huddle up with people who are similar to us. We don't even think about it. It's natural for us to talk to people who are similar to us. That's just what we've been, that's what we do. It's sort of a way of uh, of ensuring security, of uh, minimizing rejection, is we talk to people who we like, right? And I'm thankful, though, that we have a church that is relatively diverse, relatively diverse. People have different, different ethnicities and backgrounds and life stages. Some people are born and raised in this neighborhood. Some people are from other countries, right? We're pretty diverse. And I truly believe that this is a God-given opportunity that many churchgoers don't have to step out of your comfort zone. And you say hi to people you might, naturally be, you might not naturally be friends with and practice cross-cultural unity at the individual level. You know, I want to share from my own personal experience. I grew up in a relatively sheltered environment in the suburbs of California where uh, there were SAT tutoring centers and uh, Chinese bubble tea shops everywhere. Okay, that was my context. Okay, if you've never, if you don't even know what that is, then bless you. You know, I grew up in a very different environment. Uh, Six years ago, I moved to Baltimore and, um, and it was a little bit of a culture shock, to be honest. You know, um, uh, there were, yeah, I developed a lot of relationships with people, people who I'd never imagined getting to know. And not just getting to know people, but really being friends with people. I would visit people in their homes, in the hospitals. I would give people rides. I would help people move. Uh, you know, and I, I would um, help people apply to jobs. I would help people study. Um, and uh, over time, I would see God teaching me about himself. Because what I experienced, even though I knew the gospel intellectually, and even though I was a Christian, and I realized that my understanding of who God was was so limited by my monocultural experience. Because we worship a God who's not monocultural. We worship a God who is big. And he has a huge heart for all nations and all people. And um, it's not easy. You know, it's, um, I confess that I don't have a lot of close friends. And one of the reasons why is because I'm always 
bouncing around and try to talk to different types of people and things like that. And, and it's hard, I think, to become close friends with people who are very different from you. But I will say I think I've become closer to God as a result. The beauty of being in cross-cultural context is that we are able to see a fuller picture of God. In monocultural context, we often don't realize how narrow our view of God is. We are limited by our perspective and our lens. But when we see other people and they experience God in different ways, and we notice that and we pick up on things, then we start to see God a little bit differently. And I would say in a more accurate way. And then God is glorified. You may be here, you may be thinking, that's nice and all, but you know, if I'm just honest with myself, I'm not good at that, you know. I don't do that very well. I'm not good at saying hi to people. I don't have cross-cultural relationships. And I look at my circle of friends and everyone looks like me. You know, it's like mean girls or something. <laughs> Without the mean part. Um, and if that's you, I do want to encourage you, you know, to take some steps toward cross-cultural relationships. But I also want to remind you that at the end of the day, that's not something I want to add to the gospel. At the end of the day, as we talked about today, the gospel needs to be the gospel and we can't add anything to it. And what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus crossed the ultimate divide to unite with us. Jesus crossed the ultimate divide to unite with us. You see, the gospel is not about me trying my best to develop relationships with people who are different from me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus already took that step. He bridged that divide. He took on flesh, becoming a human being, uniting with us in order to bridge the gap. You know, at one point in time, we were enemies of God. We were wholly separated from God. We were dead in our sins. There was this great chasm between God and us. And what did God do? He sent Jesus to bridge that gap spending time with us, listening to us, building relationships with us, healing, with, healing us, suffering with us, dying with us. And then he rose again and he said, now you have this opportunity to be with me, to abide in me and I'll abide in you. And we can be one. We can be united. If unity relied on uniformity, then Jesus would never have come. If unity relied on uniformity, then Jesus would never have come. He would have seen us, looked at us, and he would have said, these people are so different from me. These people are so sinful compared to me. These people are so broken compared to me. Why would I want to hang out with these people? But what Jesus did was he said, because you are different, because you are sinful, because you are broken, I will go to you. And I will live with you and I will die for you, and I will rise again to make you new. And I will invite you into this family, this multi-ethnic, multicultural family, this family of ragtag people who, know, who look nothing alike, but that's the point. And he's saying, you have this opportunity to live out the gospel now. You have this opportunity to love one another, to love even your enemies, because that's what I did. 
We're going to be moving into a time of communion in a moment. And what communion is, is the symbolic demonstration of Jesus' unity to us. We take the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken for us. We, take, we dip it in the cup, which represents Jesus' blood shed for us, and we eat it. And what that represents is Jesus is in us. Jesus is for us. Jesus is with us. We're declaring that we are one with Christ by our communion. So when you are ready, whether this is your first time declaring your unity with Jesus or whether this this is your millionth time, um, you can take some time to pray a little bit, reflect on the message, and you can come to the front, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it right there. Remember that Jesus died and rose again, that you may have life and that you would be one with him. Stand with me, please, as we close in prayer. Uh, Father, your son Jesus, when he was here on earth the night before he died, he prayed in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And Father, may that be our prayer today as well, that we, the village church, would also be one. Just as you are one, just as the Trinity is one, may that oneness permeate us too. So that though we may come from all different backgrounds, that we may be different, that we may not see things the same way, we may not understand things the same way, we may not even have the same values, that we may be one, united by the fact that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us and he united with us. God, some of us are so scared of breaking out of our comfort zone and associating with people who are different from us, talking to people who are different from us, God, may you remind us of your love for us, that it is not on the basis of our performance, our relationship-building skills that we are saved, but it is the basis of your performance and your relationship-building skills that we are saved. And God, we want to pray that more and more people who don't yet know you in our communities the friends we interact with, our classmates, our workmates, our family members, the people who live on our block, that they may see us just as Jesus prayed and they would see our unity, they would see our cross-cultural relationships and that the world may believe that you have sent the Son, that they would be saved, that our unity in the gospel may be a form of evangelism, of communicating the gospel that in a world where everyone is linking arms with those who are similar to them and judging those who are different from them, in a world where everyone is spending so much time setting boundaries and, and, and setting division and marking territory, we may be the church that says we are one, we are united, we are a cross-cultural, multi-ethnic family because of Jesus. And they may see that as a beautiful display of the gospel, and they would believe. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.